Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, a podcast that's all about comic book movies. I'm Joe Cunningham, and joining me as always to help make sense of the comics behind the movies are... Sir Patrick and James Hunt. We'll be discussing the latest in comic book movie and TV news, and then we'll explore one movie or television show in depth during our main discussion. This week we'll be casting our eyes over Tim Burton's 1989 film, Batman. But before any of that, I'm going to ask Seven James to explain a comics concept that, as a movie fan, I just don't understand. So... Seb, James, we're going to be moving on to this in a minute, but it's a two-part question. A, what is the difference between the Fantastic Four and the ultimate version of the Fantastic Four? And B, what are ultimate versions of things? You might have to start with part B first. (laughs) So part B, so ultimate is uh, in 2000, Marvel decided to launch a new line of comics that was taking their existing characters and not exactly rebooting them, but in a kind of parallel universe, telling the stories afresh, you know, with no continuity, being able to change them, bring them more up to date, have their origins be set in the present day, and that kind of thing. So they started with Ultimate Spider-Man, which has been going for 15 years and is still going and is still very good. Which It's still going for about three or four months. Well, yes, the the whole Ultimate Universe is about to come to an end (laughs) in a few months' time. Um, But they they did Ultimate Spider-Man, which obviously recast Spider-Man as a 15-year-old and kind of did his origin in the present day. Uh, They then did Ultimate X-Men, The Ultimates, which was basically the Avengers, and Ultimate Fantastic Four. Um, All of the first three that I mentioned there were quite big influences on their respective movies, although I think in all cases, especially in the case of the Avengers, the, the movies kind of outgrew and supplanted the, you know, the intention of what the Ultimate books were supposed to do. Um... And then uh, Ultimate Fantastic Four hasn't really been adapted into a movie yet, uh, but looks like it's going to be quite a big influence on the new one. So, James, what makes Fantastic Four Ultimate? Uh, basically, they, the Ultimate version of the team is slightly younger, like they're sort of precocious teenagers slash young adults rather than you know people in their what late twenties, early thirties. Does that make a big difference on on the comic? Well, sort of as a 
as a comics purist, th- like this is something I'll talk about when we discuss the trailer. But the uh, the idea about the Fantastic Four is that they're a kind of surrogate family, yeah, with Reed and Sue as the parents and Johnny and Ben as the kids. And if you de-age them all to much younger, that that dynamic sort of gets lost because you know you can't really be a grown up if you've got your parents hanging around like they do in the Ultimate Version. I mean, there's a lot of kind of plot differences, obviously, but it's things like so when when Fantastic Four started in the 1960s, you know, um, man hadn't landed on the moon yet. So the mission in which they got their powers was that they went into space and immediately upon getting into space, you get bombarded with cosmic rays that turn you into a superhero. (laughs) Um, So obviously that needed to be updated for the modern era. So uh, in the comic, it's that they're experimenting with trying to find parallel universes and it's when they go through an other dimensional door or something that it all kicks off. Right, well, it's almost as if I picked that topic as a seamless segue into our news. Uh, So let's move on to this week's Comic Book Movie News segment. And the first thing I'd like to ask you guys, what did you think of the Fantastic Four trailer? Yeah, we're not allowed to swear, are we? You're not a fan, James? Uh, I just think if you took the Fantastic Four logo off the end, you wouldn't have known it was a Fantastic Four film. Well, and the bit where they're stood there like looking like the Fantastic Four... You can see a sort of rocky lump that might be the thing. It could be, could have been Jupiter ascending. I thought the the general reaction to it online seemed to be, oh, uh, well, this at least looks like a competently put together film, which I know a lot of the blogs were kind of hand-wringing about the fact that we hadn't seen anything from the movie and we were only seven months away from release. I mean, it's sort of that speaks to the poor development process, though, and like allowing things to leak like a really shonky-looking head and the idea that Victor Von Doom is going to be a blogger, things like that, gave people such low expectations that anything competently made made them go, oh yeah, it looks alright. But here's here's my thought on the matter. That cast is so good that why would I not want to watch this movie? You've seen Amazing Spider-Man, right? Which has an amazing <laughs> cast of people who are just sort of mumbling into the camera and not doing anything. Uh, yeah, you are right. But I really like those four actors. <laughs> 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 I'm, I'm, I thought the trailer looked perfectly fine, like not super exciting, but I can't remember the last, or probably no trailer for a superhero movie since Guardians of the Galaxy made me go, oh, hey, that looks amazing. It it was a tease. It was a little tease. Yeah, it was a bit too much of a tease. I'd have liked to have seen the Fantastic Four in the Fantastic Four trailer, but I mean, it could be fine. You know, I'll go and see it with an open mind. I I care so little about the Fantastic Four that I don't really mind if the movie bears no relation to the comics whatsoever, as long as it's a fairly decent movie. Which I think it might be, because I really liked Chronicle. So Yeah, I really like Chronicle, although it seems to split people. Let's move on to our second piece of news, guys. Um, and this is kind of double news. Uh, it touched on some of this in the mini-side last week. So, a.k.a. Jessica Jones has cast two new characters. Uh, the Purple Man has been confirmed as the villain and will be played by David Tennant. And then the inclusion of Hellcat has been confirmed and will be played by Australian actress Rachel Taylor. I don't know either of those characters at all. Is this exciting? Something that's interesting about the fact that Hellcat is in it is that in the comic version, Jessica Jones's best friend is Captain Marvel, okay. who is obviously getting her own film. So what they've clearly done is swapped that character for Hellcat. Yeah, it seems pretty obvious that she's going to fill that exact role. <laughs> yeah, another B-list superhero, which is what Carol Danvers was at the time. The fact that they're using Purple Man is interesting, and I suspect Seb's got something to say about this. You can't... If you're going to do the whole 
story of Alias. And just for anyone who isn't aware, so it's a series that was published by Marvel in the early 2000s as part of their Max imprint, which was, I mean, it sounds laughable now, but at the time it was their imprint where all the comics would be quite edgy and violent and have swearing and sex and stuff in them. But out of it, we also got Alias, which does have a lot of swearing and graphic content in it, but which is also one of the best character pieces that Marvel have ever published and Jessica Jones was a brand new character created for that but then she was kind of retconned back into the Marvel Universe as someone who had been a hero several years previously and had then retired due to then unknown circumstances Um, and without giving too much away the Purple Man is a part of those then unknown circumstances but his story, he's actually a a daredevil villain originally that Mm. then got used in Alias Um, and that storyline is basically the last storyline of Alias, Um, i.e. you first find out their background together and then he shows up in the present day and that all gets dealt with so it's interesting that they're doing it because if they're, you know, it seems like in this one season they'll be sort of doing the full spectrum. And obviously they won't cover every story arc that was in the comic and they won't just be doing straight-up adaptations. But it seems that they're not being slow about getting into Jessica's background and doing that story and that confrontation. So You'd kind of have to imagine that, yeah, to be in The Defenders, Jessica Jones will have to go back to some sort of superhero-ish crime-fighting. So maybe it Mm. makes sense to be getting the Purple Man stuff out of the way in the first arc. The thing about Jessica is that her main kind of defining attribute is that she is someone who got powers, tried to be a hero, it didn't really work, and so she went and did something else with her life and was better at that than she was at being a hero. Mm. Um, And, you know, with the exception also of a a short series called The Pulse where she was working for the Daily Bugle, you know, the best storylines about Jessica were in the series Alias where she was a former superhero turned private eye. So if you're doing a series, the purpose of which is to build her up to being a superhero again, I I question whether that will be as good as a series that's just about her being a private eye. Yeah, I'll be honest, I quite like the idea of them having this good art to adapt and then having the freedom to take the character that they've put on the screen and do new stuff with that character. Hmm. I think that's always generally a benefit in superhero properties when you kind of get the you get the comic stuff out of the way. Especially on TV, you see this in Arrow and Flash and then they can kind of start doing their own things with those characters and, you know, you know, craft their own relationships and put different characters in different situations that are, are exciting because they're new they're new fresh ideas. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's pretty much the right thing to do to adapt the for the entire series of Alias as your first arc, especially because you know if Luke Cage has been introduced, there's a really obvious direction for the second arc. So, um, but the thing about Alias is that there, I mean, for such a short series, there is a lot to to draw from, and there's there's a lot of really good material. I can understand why they're doing the Purple Man. The problem is that there are some slightly problematic elements to that storyline. Um, with and I don't really want to go into spoilery detail. It's something that the comic I think skirts a quite fine line and just about manages to avoid going too far into the wrong side of. But it's something that it would be very easy if someone was adapting it to do it the wrong way. But it's it's interesting. I just that that part of that storyline I'm not as keen on as I am other parts of Alias. So it doesn't interest me hugely, and I don't really like the Purple Man as a character, but I think David Tennant's really interesting casting for it, so we'll see, really. I'm just wondering whether the fact that Jessica Jones, aka Jessica Jones, is being showrun by Melissa Rosenberg, that might be 
hopefully something that uh, a female point of view might yeah might help with. Mm. You would hope so. We're, talk- yeah. we're talking around a topic now. Okay, uh, let's move on to our next piece of news. And this is a couple of details around Ant-Man and Age of Ultron that were revealed in the latest issue of Empire magazine on all good newsstands now. Um, Ant-Man... Certainly done. There was a nice little tidbit that in the scene that Empire witnessed when they were on the set, Scott Lang was being trained by Evangeline Lilly's character so that she would kind of be established as being a bit of a badass and that she she would essentially have to kick Scott Lang into shape to make him, you know, worth putting in the Ant-Man suit. And then Age of Ultron, the piece kind of revealed what the opening sequence of Age of Ultron would be, which um, Joss Whedon calls a pre-credits Bondian blowout, which will see the <laughs> entire team together in the, in, in the first scene, um, paying a surprise visit to the East European Castle Hideout of evil Hydra operative Baron von Strucker in order to retrieve Loki's scepter. And that's something that they do, and um, something bad goes down with Hulk there. Um, or I think, you know, Hulk loses control a little bit, and the scene that we see in the Age of Ultron trailers with um, Mark Ruffalo on the plane, kind of with a drip in his arm, struggling with what he's just done. That isn't after the fight with Tony and the Hulkbuster. That's after that big Bond sequence at the start. Yeah, there was another bit in that Empire piece that really surprised me that they were so willing to give away, which is that Joss Whedon basically confirms that Thanos is in it. Oh, does he? Yeah. When? Um, it, they talk about the scene that's shown in the trailer, which is where they, it shows them all lying on dead on a battlefield and Cap's shield is broken and stuff. Um, and the, the the article basically tells you that that scene is a flash forward shown by the Scarlet Witch of them all being beaten by Thanos. Yes. Which just mm. seemed like a really big thing to give away. Um, uh, I was really surprised by I'll that. Be, I kind of... Uh, had assumed that from the trailers, the fact that we saw the kind of, you know, Cap's broken shield. But, I mean, no, I'd, I'd assumed it wasn't real, yeah. but to say this is this is a vision of the future that Scarlet Witch shows them and it's Thanos seems like a lot of detail. That just, yeah. I was surprised they let that one out, really. It's so. interesting that they put it in the trailer then, because that, that seems like post-credits material, doesn't it, really? Uh, no, no, that, surely that would be middle act kind of stuff where whenever Scarlet Witch and Iron Man come into contact, which is probably after the Hulkbuster sequence. Maybe, you know, during the period where Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver get kind of co-opted into the Avengers team, that Scarlet Witch goes, hey, look, you better watch yourself, Tony Stark, because this is the future that you are creating at the moment. And will probably be motivation for whatever breakups in the team there are at the end of the film. Yeah, could be. Uh, what, do, what do we think about the opening sequence with um, a Bond-esque opening sequence where they the assault is on Baron von Strucker immediately? Uh, I'm I'm sort of glad that they're not going to you know make you wait because that's the worst thing about superhero origin movies is that you have to sit through forty minutes of 
you know, chaff to get to the fun bit. I think the other thing is that, obviously, by the end of this film, the Avengers are going to be in a very different place and will probably be a very different lineup as well. So I think... Probably disbanded, I would say. (laughs) Well, yeah, but I think it's going to be, given that, you know, you spent most of the last film putting that team together, then they finally got to be a team at the end. We do need a bit of them just being an odd, you know, doing their everyday Avengers team business before we get into the storyline that's presumably going to tear them apart a little bit so it seems like exactly the right kind of thing to i mean bond-esque is a good comparison because with a bond film you always get here's bond going about his ordinary business and then oh here's the storyline that shakes things up a bit yeah so i'm gonna i'm gonna throw out some of my wild mcu speculation which is that hulk whether it's space or something else will be completely removed from the equation by the end of the movie thor will be going back to asgard with no plans to return uh, Cap will be going off with a team that probably includes Falcon, Scarlet Witch, Quicksilver, and Tony will be kind of at a loss of what to do. Probably have Rhodey with him. Unless Rhodey abandons him. How cool would that be? Yeah, the, the Iron Patriot joining Cap's team. <laughs> Let's move on to our final piece of news, which, um, again, I touched on briefly in the Minnesota last week. Uh, but, Seb, I know you definitely wanted to talk about this. Melissa Benoist has been cast as CBS's Supergirl. Yeah, I mean, well, I don't have a huge amount to say about it, but, you know, as one of the few people who is actually vaguely interested in Supergirl. um, Yeah, I mean, I don't know a lot about uh, Melissa Benoist. Um, I did ask my wife, who watches Glee, whether she was any good, and she said that she's basically a sort of slightly dull and quite white-bred kind of character, and, well, that seems pretty much dead on for Supergirl, really. So, um, (laughs) And I say that as someone who likes the character. Um, But, you know, the last time they cast someone from Glee as a superhero, it worked out really well. So um, I like the fact that it looks like Jimmy Olsen's going to be in the series. I mean, traditionally... Yeah, he has been cast, yeah. Yeah. Um, and he hasn't really ever had much to do with Supergirl aside from in the movie, but I think it's quite it makes for quite a nice link to the Superman mythos, and I think he's a character that could fit well, um, you know, in that environment. So, yeah, this could be interesting. It's weird to do a Supergirl series in a sort of in a television universe that hasn't established Superman yet, but. Well, I guess I guess as long as they mention him. I mean, to be honest, generally most of the best Supergirl stuff has been when you disconnect her from Superman as much as possible. My question for you, Seb, would be... Um, so obviously this is happening on a different network to Flash and Arrow, which are on mm. the CW. But there is there is an obvious connection between CBS and the CW and the fact that some of the people behind the series are going to be the same creative people behind Flash and Arrow. Would that be something that you'd like to see part of that shared universe or would you prefer to see it completely separate? I think it would make more sense to make it part of a shared universe. I mean, I think for its, you know, probably for its first season or whatever, you would want it to establish itself. I mean, Flash is different because Flash kind of directly span out of Arrow and it made sense to establish the links early on. Um, But I think the odd hint here or there that they are in the same universe, you know, and a potential crossover down the line, I don't think there's any harm in it. I'm just hoping they use the version of Supergirl that is an angel with flaming wings. (laughs) That means nothing to me, but it sounds amazing. (laughs) (laughs) less amazing than you'd think but interesting okay well that's it for the news segment this week let's move on to our spoiler filled discussion of tim burton's batman Uh, but before we dive straight in let's listen to a clip from the movie let's beat him man i don't like it up here what are you scared of heights i don't know after what happened to Johnny Gobbs? Hey, look man Johnny Gobbs got ripped and took a walk off a roof all right no big loss no man that ain't what I heard at all. I heard the bat got him. The bat? Oh, man, give me a break, will you? 
Okay guys, so Batman, I think where I'd like to start off is just asking both of you when you first saw the movie, what was your first experience of the movie? Because uh, you're both a little bit older than me. I remember watching it as a kid, kind of on TV, on repeats, but what was your first experience with it? So I, I mean, I, obviously I remember being desperate to see it when it came out because it was it was around about the time that I was really getting into comics. The whole Batmania thing was going on and my dad was buying Batman comics quite a lot. Uh, but couldn't go and see it at the cinema because it was it was the first ever 12, wasn't it? And and then then it was a 15 on video because they didn't have 12s on video. So I first saw it on a pirated copy that we bought on a holiday in Cyprus. <laughs> that had been filmed in a cinema and was really lousy quality. So that was my experience of Batman for several years, was a crappy pirate copy. Um, and then I also read the comics adaptation so that I could better understand what was actually going on in it. <laughs> that will have helped. What about you, James? Uh, I honestly could not tell you when I first saw it. It must. It was probably on TV in the early 90s. Yeah. I have, I have much stronger memories of Batman Returns than this. Like I don't think I've even seen this since since I first watched it. Like, oh, really? I'm pretty sure I've only watched it once in my entire life. That's interesting because I have stronger memories of Batman Returns as well. But I watched this movie before The Dark Knight came out, so that was the last time I watched it. Batman kind of occupies a, a pretty unique position in superhero cinema history in that it was kind of it was coming off the back of the the four superman films which had started off hugely successfully and 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 started to go badly wrong and then yeah in in 1989 in terms of big movies there wasn't really anything else by then was there yeah i mean the the last superman had come out in 87 but was you know it's aside from being hilariously dreadful it's a footnote in history because it was incredibly cheap and made no money Mm. i think because Batman had been in development for quite a while before then, uh, I think they'd been it had been in the hands of the same producers like as early as the kind of early eighties. Um, so it was in the wake of Superman one and two that they were trying to get a Batman film made. I think the thing was though, obviously there was no real catalyst for a particular take on Batman until the explosion in Batman comics in the late eighties. So you've got in 86 and 87, you've got The Dark Knight Returns and Year One, which are the two Mm. kind of Frank Miller magnum opus Batman comics. And Dark Knight Returns in particular, um, you know, came out the same year as Watchmen. And those two comics were two of the first comics that were sort of, you know, published as regular comics in comic shops, but that then got collected into trade paperbacks and essentially became graphic novels that, you know, were kind of, consumed by a wider audience so while i don't think you can really detect much of it in the film dark knight returns was a huge influence on just the idea of doing a an ostensibly serious and darker take on batman and so the question then is is it any good because in the movie (laughs) kind of world i feel like every time this gets brought up that whether Batman holds up. It seems to be a 50-50 split, mm. and there's some people that will hold up Burton's Batmans as the, the definitive versions, and other people will say, no, it was it was kind of like a, a really kitschy product of the time. I, I'm firmly of the opinion that it does not hold up, <laughs> having rewatched it. I am... Um... I think, I mean, I, w- I would sum it up as a contrast to how I talked about Daredevil in the previous episode, which is that while I, I think Daredevil was a great take on the character of Daredevil as he existed in the comics, but isn't a very good film, 
I think Burton's Batman is a great film, and it is not a good portrayal of Batman in the slightest. But I think it's a really good film. I think it's really... I enjoy it every time I watch it. It's got flaws, and it's got problems, and it's stupid, and it's ridiculous, but I find it an enjoyable piece of filmmaking every time I watch it. I think it's great. I'm kind of the opposite there, in that I... Daredevil last week, I really enjoyed while I was watching it, while kind of understanding that there was, you know, a multitude of reasons why it's... It's not really a good film. Whereas I think, you know, Tim Burton's a good filmmaker. His vision of Gotham is incredible and unique in in the times that the budget allows him to show it. But especially in the second half, it's just not a film that I really enjoy. I think after Bruce Wayne encounters the Joker, that's kind of the point that I kind of, I almost switch off after that point. <laughs> well, the thing, the part of the problem that it's got is that, well, the, the plot is entirely nonsensical, but it also takes a juddering turn halfway through um the joker has about three or four different plans or plots in this film and he just flits from one to the other nonsensically i like that <laughs> i quite like that i was gonna say that's that's a kind of jokerish ml yeah, isn't it that is quite jokerish but it's also it makes the film suffer as a coherent plot because it doesn't really have a coherent plot um it's a, i i think it's a string of really good set pieces put together basically the prevailing wisdom at the time when The Dark Knight came out was that Heath Ledger would have a hell of a job living up to Jack Nicholson's Joker. I think now that seems a little bit strange looking back, but what I like about Nicholson's Joker is that he is so kind of like weirdly comically unhinged that it's just, mm. he's like, he wants to unleash this chaos and also there's this Batman guy who he feels has wronged him and he wants to get that guy back somehow. And just kind of like wildly runs around doing this different stuff and just trying to get away with whatever he can and almost and trying to bait Batman into coming and fighting him. There's something that that holds true for for Batman and Batman comics in general which is and I think more so than any other comics character or any other superhero is that there are so many different styles and interpretations and in their own way they're mostly all pretty valid, you know, from the Adam West version to Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns. In the films I never think they've quite got Batman right as a convincing figure but the Joker you have had three live action portrayals of the Joker that they've all got they've got their differences but there is also a quite clear through line from Cesar Romero to Jack Nicholson to Heath Ledger they all are a different take and kind of different levels of certain levels of kind of darkness and weirdness um, but they're all great and like Jack, Jack Nicholson for a lot of the film is doing a good Cesar Romero impression but adding <laughs> this unhinged psychoticness to it and then you can see a lot of Jack Nicholson's version in what Heath Ledger does because Heath Ledger is kind of like Jack Nicholson's what you were talking about the kind of just the deranged chaos he's that but without the sort of the, the snidey psychopath element that you get in Jack Nicholson's one that you mainly get because we saw him as Jack Napier before he was the Joker. Yeah. So that always kind of hangs over Jack Nicholson's version a little bit, whereas Heath Ledger is that, but with the brakes taken off. I do think having having Jack Napier in the film really harms yeah, totally. the Joker as a villain. Yeah, he would be so much better if he just showed up as he is as the Joker. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that we're talking about the Joker so much, though, because essentially... And, and, and yeah, this is... You're talking about giving the Joker his backstory, but this is a Joker origin story in which we really don't get to know Batman an awful lot. It's, it's 20 minutes before we see Bruce Wayne, um, mm -hmm. and in that in that time we've seen a bunch of Jack, loads of Jack Nicholson. But by the time we see more of Michael Keaton than his chin, it's 20 minutes in. This is this is a Joker origin story, right? In which 
Batman happens to be the guy patrolling Gotham City. Well, yeah, that that's sort of why I didn't like it. Like I, I was watching it in the first half hour, especially. I was just thinking, when when are they going to get to the story? Because they spend so much time with like with you know the the bums and the police and Jack Napier and Batman's barely in it. I'll be honest though, I thought this was something quite clever that the that the film did, which superhero movies since don't seem to have managed this, especially in terms of the first movie in a franchise, Batman kind of solves the origin story here. By having Vicky Vale and the Knox journalist character kind of trying to get to the bottom of Batman, you have his origin story teased out, and you have his motivation slightly teased out, and you allow the villain to be the centrepiece, uh, the kind of flashy centrepiece, but the emotional core always comes back to Bruce. I, I, I kind of like that. I like that they didn't just do a straight-up origin story that started with 40 minutes of Batman training to be a ninja. <laughs> That's That seems like a dig at a future uh, movie. <laughs> but, you know, I, I just think if you're going to do a superhero film, you need the superhero up front. Like, if you want to do a Joker film, that's fine, but call it Joker. But that first scene's great. I mean, we it, in the first scene, we do get Batman, and that's what I like. That 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 opening scene, I, I almost forgot what was happening in that opening scene. I was like, oh, I thought, I thought the movie opened on Batman, not on Bruce Wayne's origin, you know, the Joe Chill killing his parents. Except that that, that opening scene is a complete fake-out, where it's a different family walking down the street who happens to be getting mugged by a different person. <laughs> and then Batman comes in, and I thought that was really cool. Yeah, I did. I liked that they kind of had them mirroring it. I mean, they blew it by having the woman addressed the guy's husband by his name, like <laughs> yeah. Harry, Harry or something, was yeah. it? Yeah. But then Batman turns up, and Michael Keaton says, I'm Batman. And that's cool, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Yeah, I mean, he's sort of in a Batman costume as well, isn't he? Kind of. Oh, that cowl. Can we talk about the cowl? <laughs> it is the most cumbersome thing I've ever seen on a movie screen. When, when, when Batman is moving from side to side, he's literally moving his shoulders. He looks left and right and kind of does a full body swivel. He, he has to do that for all of them. It wasn't until Dark Knight that they solved that and yeah. gave him a, a different... It's like every single Batman costume has had that problem where you have to turn your entire body to turn around. Yeah, I mean, it looks like it's about an inch thick, doesn't it, across yeah. him? It's very Tim Burton, though, isn't it? it? Oh, yeah. Tim Burton's not really interested in making a movie about someone who would realistically put on a costume and go and fight crime. He's interested in a movie about an incredibly stylized character in a ridiculous costume that shows up in these scenes and cannot possibly actually move in the way that he's supposed to, but it doesn't matter because he looks like this ridiculous, imposing black bat figure, you know. So, so the Gotham of this movie, is that more reflective of the comics or of Tim Burton? I mean, how, how much Tim Burton and how much comic book Gotham City is in this version? The, the film influenced the comics. It's because um, it, it's Anton first who did the, you know the sort of the design of Gotham. Nothing like that version of Gotham had ever been in the comics before, really? but it has been in the comics a lot since. The, the film mm-hmm. really informed kind of Gotham becoming a character in its own right for the first time in the comics. Gotham was kind of nondescript in the comics because it was just kind of a bit New York, a bit Chicago, you know. Um, but this idea of it as this ridiculous, sprawling, chaotic, gothic art deco city has pretty much held true for quite a while after that film. I think it was a really big influence. And what about then, um, going back to that, that that big old cowl that Batman is wearing, what about that costume? Is that burton or is that comic Because... I mean, it's. Um, I've never seen Batman on the screen look more like a bat. Like, he actually, when he stood in the background of the villains in that opening scene, he's opening up his cape to fully give you the bat effect. It's no, I mean, again, it's the, the the costume was not like anything that had been in the comics before. The costume was always grey, hmm. uh, usually with like a blue cowl, but sometimes black. Um, that costume eventually made its way into the comics in about... It was ridiculously late that they did it. It was about 95, 96, maybe. Wow. Um, it was a storyline called Troika. It was a little while after. Basically, you had Nightfall, where Batman wasn't Batman for a bit. Um, and then he's kind of... While he's recovering, there was a storyline called Prodigal, where Dick Grayson was Batman for a very short while. Then the first storyline after Prodigal was Troika, and it culminated in him redesigning his costume to basically look like the black one from the movie. But that only lasted about two or three years, I think. And sort of throughout the 90s, the the ears on his cowl extend yeah. largely because of the film. Would you say then generally as a rule that this film is more an influencer of the comics than it was influenced by the comics? Yeah, I mean, it doesn't really take a lot from the comics. And I've always thought it was kind of a bit laughable that you read people involved with the film talking about how you know they wanted to do this kind of serious dark take and really go back to the style of the comics because there's so little from the comics in the film like with the exception of Bruce Wayne and the Joker and Alfred and Vicky Vale almost every other incidental character is created for the film okay you've got Harvey Dent Commissioner Gordon as well Billy D Williams the Terence Howard of this <laughs> yeah. franchise yeah Terrence Howard. poor Billy um, D but yeah, you've got Alexander Knox was created for the film. Gus Grissom, the mob boss, was created for the film. Um, you know, there's a lot of 
Tim Burton putting in his kind of thing into it. Is um is Gus Grissom the Jack Palance character? The Jack Palance character. Yeah, Jack Palance hamming it up. Hamming it up. Unbelievably. <laughs> it's great, though. How are you in a scene where with Jack Nicholson playing the Joker and you're the hammier actor? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Wonderfully so, though. I have to say, I really enjoyed it. Oh, it's great, but it's it's totally in keeping with the ridiculous nature of the film. And, and this is kind of the point I was getting to, which is that the film is actually, while it's got a kind of dark surface to it it's incredibly camp and silly and it is more like the batman tv series than it is the comics um i mean you only have to look at the fact that tim burton said that he was not a fan of the comics and sam ham who wrote the script was quite a comic book fan but tim burton was not and tim burton was so obviously influenced by the batman tv series you've got scenes where the joker's goons have got his face drawn on their jackets and he's got a helicopter with his face drawn on it and stuff (laughs) you know batman flies the batwing which just happens to conveniently have a pair of scissors on the front of it oh, so bat, that he can the Batwing is awful. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean, like I love it, like it looks great and I wanted the toy as a kid, but that whole scene is terrible and pointless. Seven-year-old me desperately wanted that Batmobile and that Batwing, but they're fucking horrible <laughs> I like the bit where for no reason whatsoever he flies up to the moon just so you can see the bat symbol on the moon and then he yeah. drops down again. There's actually no reason for him to do that other than <laughs> that to was, think, oh, That was definitely like Tim Burton congratulating himself on a great idea, wasn't yeah. it? From the trailers I could find on YouTube, the Batwing sequence seemed to be pretty central. Um, And I I really hate that sequence because it's this big build-up of him doing all this awesome stuff, well, flying some balloons away with the Batwing, and then flying back at the Joker and shooting at him, missing on either side, and then the Joker taking out a novelty gun, shooting one bullet and crashing the Batwing. But That's if any if dumb. anything tells you that this movie is basically an update of the Adam West series, it's that scene. Yeah. And I, I, that, this is why this whole idea that it's this dark, serious Batman film is ridiculous. Do you think because it's the first it's, scene? It's silly. Do you think it is that first like scene that, with Batman, but... you know, finding go- finding these goons going, I'm Batman, and wearing all black and mm. Gotham being dark, uh, that almost fools you into that. And really, yeah, really, really, the, really the biggest indicator should be as soon as you see Jack Nicholson as the Joker, you go, oh, okay, right, I know where I am now. Yeah. <laughs> the thing is, though, you have to sort of look at it in the context of, like, the films that had come before. So, like, there was no dark superhero films before Batman. And so, yeah, you'll look at it and go, oh, it's kind of, it's got gothic visuals and it's sort of set at night you know he's not a friendly superhero he's kind of dressing up and beating up the poor and the homeless uh, i mean you can see why people would have thought oh yeah this is a dark film mm. it's only in the context of christopher nolan came along and did a psychologically dark take on batman that throws that into relief of oh actually it's a bit camp and stupid seb you wanted to talk about Knox, who is the journalist that accompanies yeah vale now Am, am I right in thinking Vicky Vale is a journalist herself in the comics and not a photographer? Um, you could be yeah, right. yeah, that's right. Because as, that was it. As much as I thought Knox was quite funny and that he, I, I liked him when he was on screen. I didn't really see the point for him when you of him when you had Vicky Vale I, right there. I, I would suspect that if you just have Vicky Vale as the journalist slash love interest trying to find out about Batman you're opening yourself to the accusation that you're just ripping off Lois Lane. And I think mm-hmm. at least having her be a photographer sets yeah. that apart. Also, it does give a, a reason point. for, I mean, in as much as any of the Joker's plot has a reason, um, the Joker's obsession with her begins when he sees her photography. 
And so he sees himself as an artist and he sees her as a great artist and that's why they should be together kind of thing. So there is, I think, that element to it. But yeah, I mean, you, I mean, Knox. The thing with him, and the thing I find interesting about him. Firstly, I just I really enjoyed that character and that performance by Robert Wool. But the thing about Batman is that for a lot of the film, Batman isn't a very good hero. Like he spends a lot of time in that film falling over. You know, is, if you is were Batwing... wearing that cowl set, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Is <laughs> um, Batwing gets shot down by the Joker? He doesn't actually do a lot to solve. The... Apart from when he steals the balloons, you know, he doesn't do a lot to solve the problem. He does steal the hell out of those balloons. Though. Yeah, he does. He it's some excellent balloon theft. Um, but the thing is, like, he's not that great as a hero. And then actually, you also have the problem of the fact that he kills someone near the end of the film, which is not great for about. Yeah, film. this is some. This is a big thing that I don't like about the film is that he just kind of kills that guy. <laughs> he just chucks a guy off off the. Ri- I mean, yeah. throughout the rest of the film, it's very careful to make sure that he could almost kill people, but doesn't. Like, I mean, there is a whole point where he shoots at the Joker, which is ridiculous. But at least he doesn't actually shoot him. And then, yeah, just in the middle of a fight scene, he just chucks a guy off a bell tower, which is just, mm. you know, you know. I, I mean, we could we talked about it a bit with Daredevil, and we we could spend a while talking about the why certain heroes don't kill and others do. But there are two particular superheroes who should never kill anyone, and they're Batman and Superman. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and just but just coming back to Knox, the thing is, I think Knox is more the hero of the film because he's actually got a plot arc. He's there from the beginning, and you know throughout the film he's trying to do two things which are you know one kind of expose the kind of corruption and the mob stuff he's pretty fearless when it comes to doing that he's kind of he's quite confrontational of and kind of takes the piss out of like you know mobsters to their faces at one point and he's also you know trying to get the kind of the story on batman which ultimately he doesn't succeed at but i just think throughout the film most of what he does while he's a bit goofy um he's doing good and mostly succeeding at it. So, I mean, I'm just drawing another through line through to uh, Daredevil. He is the poor man's Joey Pants, right? <laughs> I, I think Joey Pants is the poor man's Alexander. Oh, but at least Joey Pants, like, <laughs> he solves the mystery and he's about to write the article and then he clicks delete like a True. bloody hero. <laughs> he clicks delete and it gradually disappears. Yes. <laughs> which is how, how things delete. <laughs> should, we, should we talk about Michael Keaton as... Uh, kind of as Batman and as Bruce, a lot of people, their favourite Batman is Keaton. Now, I'm not sure my favourite Batman is Keaton, but I think he's my favourite Bruce Wayne. That, yeah, I, I that's exactly that. what I was going to say. Like, his Bruce Wayne is really kind of sort of arch, maybe. Mm. Like, he's not he's not, he's not, not a humorless bastard like he is in the Christopher Nolan films. And he's not the sort of flashy, exaggerated playboy he is in the, in the latter Schumacher films. I, li- I like that scene where he walks in behind Vicky and yeah. Knox. Yeah, that, in the, <laughs> that specifically. In I, I think I think everything he does in in all of those scenes at that party is great because I love the bit where he's kind of absentmindedly wandering around, dropping things, and Alfred's picking them up behind him. Yes. I, I kind of <laughs> like this idea because you have the thing of you know Bruce Wayne is a sort of you know he's a mask of a sort of playboy dilettante, but I kind of like the idea that just generally when he ha- when he hasn't got the Batman costume on and when he's not being kind of focused and serious, that he is a bit kind of absentminded because he hasn't got his Batman persona switched on. It's not really a take on Bruce that's been done before, but I like it anyway. Like I, I don't think Michael Keaton's Bruce Wayne is like a Bruce Wayne that's ever been in the comics, but I really like it as a version of Bruce Wayne. I think it really mm-hmm. works, and he's great. It's a version of Bruce Wayne that feels directly influenced by Keaton, by Tim Burton. I mean, because Keaton was severely doubted mm. going into this. It was, oh, Tim Burton's got Beetlejuice to play Batman. That's weird. But you can, you can completely see it in that 
he is a guy that you really like and you really root for. And he has that edge. And it comes through when he, as Bruce Wayne, loses his mm. shit with the Joker. Which is just my favourite moment in the entire film, where you see Keaton without the mask just going mental. And it's brilliant. <laughs> but you can... You can totally see why Burton wanted Keaton. Yeah, mm-hmm. the, the the problem is just whenever he gets into the costume, it's and it's not even Keaton's fault that he's not a convincing Batman. It's that this film doesn't really know how to do a convincing Batman. But then I don't think most of the films that followed it know how to do a convincing Batman either. I was I was stunned when Keaton first walked in as Bruce Wayne and going, "Oh yeah, this is when superheroes didn't have to be beefcakes." Yeah, I mean, like <laughs> even even Robert Downey Jr. now who's in a suit. He he's more of a physical presence than than Keaton is here. Keaton seems positively weedy in his tuxedo. You've yeah. seen that comparison of Hugh Jackman from X Men One and the Wolverine, have you? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's insane. <laughs> yeah. I really, I actually thought the. I mean, we we can talk about the plot or whatever, but I thought the the script in terms of the dialogue is is you know you've got the uh, the Joker when he first when he first becomes the Joker, you know, throwing out wait till he get a load of me mm. and. It's a plot device, but um, you know, you ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight? It's a, it's just an instantly iconic piece of. It's dialogue. utterly meaningless, but it's it's iconic. It, <laughs> it's, uh, it sounds good, but <laughs> it's just good writing. Yeah, I like. I do like a lot of a lot of the little interactions with Nicholson's Joker with other people. A lot of the stuff with Bob is good, uh, and I really like. It's quite. It's actually when he's Jack rather than the Joker. But when Alicia comes up to him and goes, "You look really nice," and he just turns around, and gives her this withering look, and goes, "I didn't ask." <laughs> there was a lot of little little Joker moments. Like I love when Bruce witnesses the the massacre outside the courthouse, and the Joker gets into the car, looks out of the car, and sees Bruce, and just throws him a friendly little wave and drives off. Yeah, you, you wouldn't think that, that the man standing there gawping at that and not doing anything was a feared vigilante, <laughs> would you? <laughs> so I wanted to kind of finish off by diving a little bit into whether these origins of the Joker and of Batman kind of line up with anything that's been in the comics, and it makes sense to do this at the end because you're about to give me some recommendations of further reading. But I just it occurred to me watching the movie, I've never really considered what the Joker's origins are beyond the films. I like watching watching Christopher Nolan's Batman, for example, the fact that he just exists and the old episodes of the sixty uh, series, I, I never I never questioned that ah oh, that guy's the Joker, that's fine. There's um, a reason for that. And the fact that it <laughs> the fact that it ties into that it ties their two origins together almost with Jack Napier being the guy who killed Batman's parents. I take it that's not something that's something that the film invented. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, I would I would say that's the probably the worst thing the film adds to the mythos. I would agree. <laughs> Cuz yeah. the idea that Batman could go and like get revenge on the person who killed his parents is just anathema to the idea of being Batman. If he could do that, he would stop. Yeah. Exactly, but Batman isn't Batman to get revenge on the person who killed his parents. He's Batman to stop that happening to anyone else because it happened to him and there's nothing he can do about it. Which is why I really liked the opening sequence. Yeah, that that gets that across quite well. That Yeah, that it's a mirror of what happened to him and that's why he's there to stop it. Mm-hmm. It's just a shame that that isn't really what happened to him because they got murdered by Jack Napier rather than by a random mugger. So that's that's 
completely made up. But what what is the Joker's origin in the comics? Is it something that is it something that's been explored much? Well, James is going to talk about something in a minute. Um, but before <laughs> he does, I'll kind of fill you in on what the Joker's origin was before the thing that he's going to talk about, which is that essentially the Joker just appeared and didn't really have a background. And then in the 1950s, I think it was, they did a story about a villain called the Red Hood, who was a bloke in a tuxedo and a red mask, who had committed a load of crimes and who had disappeared one day after Batman had been chasing him down at a chemical factory um, and he fell into a vat of chemicals and was never heard from again. And over the course of this story, it becomes apparent that the Red Hood became the Joker. But the key thing is that you never know who the Red Hood was before he was the Red Hood. So you don't know. You just you know the Joker was right. a criminal called the Red Hood, but other than that, there's no indication of what his real name is, what his background is, or anything like that. Um, and then, James? Yeah, so we were coming up with recommendations. Um, this is your recommendation. Yeah. This is the point that I have to write down what, what I'm going to read next week. Yeah, so I don't know if you've heard of a comics writer called Alan Moore. He's, he is someone whose name I have heard. Yeah, he's quite popular in sort of within <laughs> comics. Definitely. He's up and coming. Um, he loves movie versions of his work, doesn't he? He, he does. He's a really big fan of comic book movies yeah, in general. You'll always see him <laughs> yeah, at the multimedia screening every time. I'm pretty sure he subscribes to our podcast already. <laughs> so, yeah, so Alan Moore wrote this graphic novel called The Killing Joke in 1988 uh, with the artist Brian Bollock. Which I've totally heard of. Yeah. That's good, isn't it? I hadn't heard of any of your recommendations last week, so... Um, I'm at least on point here. Tell me about Killing Joke. That graphic novel explores uh, the Joker's background and specifically the idea of the Joker as a sort of reaction to Batman. Like, I don't want to spoil, you know, the content of the story, but it has a take on the Joker's origin that leaves it sort of ambiguous while giving you the kind of tools to put together the, you know, the origin you prefer, shall we say. And the take it said that is the the comic that you were thinking was kind of the obvious. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a couple of reasons why it's quite obvious. Firstly, it is a Batman and Joker story that was published just before the movie came out. Um, it's still considered to be pretty much the definitive Joker story. Although it, it has problems, but it is, it's a really important comic, and it's a really important moment in comics. It's also, um, Tim Burton claims that it's the only Batman comic he's ever read as well. <laughs> so that's why it's, it's very relevant to this film, really. And I mean, you if, can kind of see in, uh, in Jack Nicholson's Joker, you can see the Brian Bolland influence, which is quite interesting. Given that it came out so close to the film, it managed yeah. to be an influence on the film, despite being only just before it. So what's what's your recommendation then, Seb, and why? Um, yeah, so I mean, so I, I wanted to recommend you something that kind of showed what Batman comics were like around the time that the film came out. Because the other thing about The Killing Joke is that it, it stands alone. It was, it was published as a special one-shot. It's got art that's very um, technically accomplished and stylish. And just generally, the comic doesn't really feel like a comic of the late 80s. It's quite ahead of its time in, in quite a few ways. So to give you a kind of sense of late 80s Batman comics, um, I actually wanted to recommend something called Batman Blind Justice because it was actually written by Sam Hamm, who scripted the Batman movie. Um, it came out, I think, either just before or just after the movie, but it was the, I think it was just before, but it was the kind of 50th anniversary Batman celebration story. Um, and it, it was in issues 598 to 600 of Detective Comics. It's quite an interesting, if a little bit weird, story. Um, the problem is that you can't get it because it's not on Comixology for some reason, they skipped it out um, it the only time it was ever collected into a trade was around the time of Batman Begins because it's also the comic that introduces Henri Ducard um, which was the character that you know 
Liam Neeson was pretending to be. Um, So if you can find that, that's worth a read because it's very late 80s in style and it's written by the guy who wrote the Batman movie. But something that you can definitely get hold of and which is, again, the kind of one of the major Joker stories of its time is A Death in the Family. Which, again, I've heard of two for two. (laughs) Uh, So this was... It was issues 426 to 429 of Batman. It began in the tail end of 1988 through to 1989 so it was just before the movie and it was the storyline where dc let the readers vote by phone as to whether the second robin jason todd got killed off or not i will try not to spoil whether or not he does you can read (laughs) that to find out although you know it's fairly obvious from the cover the storyline is not called life in the family (laughs) well this is the thing you would think because it was called a death in the family before they knew whether they were going to kill him or not but the point is there is another character who the title could refer to if he doesn't get killed and again i i'm sure we haven't spoiled this in the slightest it's a four issue storyline it involves the joker very heavily it is really quintessential late 80s batman it's written by jim starlin and it's drawn by jim aparo who is basically the definitive 1980s Batman artist. It's a very brutal story, but it's it's really interesting. And it's it's you can't really have any kind of interest in Batman in the 80s and 90s and not read this. It's really significant. It also contains the best ever Batman and Superman fight. Because all these times you have these hypothetical things of what would happen if Batman and Superman had a fight with one another. There is like a one-panel moment in this that tells you exactly what would happen if Batman and Superman really had a fight with one another. So. <laughs> okay, so I will read those this week, and you'll be able to hear my reactions to those on our second mini-sode. And also, we're going to put up the links to where you can get those on Panel Beats. So if you want to read along, that's how you can do it. Panelbeats.co.uk Before we move on to um, our final section, I just want you guys, if I can just get like a brief summary of your general thoughts on the film. Uh, I would say good for its time. That's the <laughs> highest praise I can give it. <laughs> okay. Seb? I still really like it. Um, it's, it has problems with how it does Batman specifically, but in general, it's a fun film that looks great. For me, the, the best way I can sum it up is that uh, yeah, while I kind of felt towards the end of the film, I, I was getting a little bit tired with it. But when it finished, I was like, I want to go watch Batman Returns now. When are we going to do that on the podcast? Um, so that'll have to come up at some point so I can. And and I, I think that always says a lot from the movie. If I want to watch the next one in the franchise, that's that's an endorsement. I didn't walk out of Thor 2 going, can't wait for the next <laughs> Thor movie. So that so that's something. Uh, and the... The one note I would like to end this discussion on is, like, I love Prince, but no. (laughs) Just no. I was exactly the right age to love that soundtrack when it came out, though. I used to listen to that soundtrack all the time. Although I think I would skip Bat Dance, but the rest of it. It's a a great Batman movie to get kids into Batman, isn't it? Yeah. Well, this is the thing, because it's got this veneer of being dark, but it's actually... Yeah, quite silly and kid-friendly at heart. Okay, let's uh, wrap up our Batman chat there. Let's move on to our third section, which is the pitch. Um, I didn't mention this last week, but you guys both have 30 seconds to pitch me um, a concept based on the parameters that I'm going to give you now. And so this week, because we're doing... Because we did Batman, I wanted to ask you guys both, if you were making a Batman movie and you had to use a villain who hadn't featured in any of the films before, who would you choose and why? Let's go with James first this week then. So James, 30 seconds to pitch me a Batman movie with a villain who hasn't featured in the films before. 
Go. Okay. Um, I haven't really decided. I'm going to come down quickly on the side of Jason Todd because uh, what you probably don't know is that he comes back after sort of 20 years and he is a villain. Uh, and I like the idea that you could tie the mythos of Robin, of being Batman psychic, uh, to sort of how it might affect you negatively. Um, I think it would be a very personal villain, which is something the films kind of lack. Excellent. Uh, Seb, how how are you feeling after hearing James's pitch? Are you confident in yours? I think James should lose points for spoilering death in the family, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'll be honest, I think think it had been given away prior to that point. And also, I already knew. Uh, (laughs) uh, Seb, uh, you've got 30 seconds to pitch me your concept starting now. Okay, so I'm going with The Ventriloquist uh, from late 80s, early 90s Batman comics. He is a small, timid, bespectacled man um, who has a wooden ventriloquist dummy called Scarface, who is a gangster with a Tommy gun. So he is a fearsome gangster, but only when he's talking through Scarface. He's ridiculous and brilliant, and I even have a casting choice, which is Toby Jones. Go and Google the ventriloquist and tell me Toby Jones wouldn't be perfect to play him, and he could do Scarface's voice as well. Do you know what? I um, I kind of want to see both of those movies, but um, in, in, in totally different contexts. I almost wonder whether, um, and I think you probably know this, Seb, is that your character could, it will never be in a movie. Probably um, not. <laughs> although Bane has been used twice. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, but may, maybe if Joel Schumacher had made a third movie, it would, <laughs> it would have fit in perfectly there. Whereas I feel like James's idea is is prime for a like a, a rebooted Batman. You you'd be surprised how serious some of the ventriloquist stories are. They're they're from oh, really? they're from really good comics by guys from two thousand AD. So they could they could both feasibly be part of the DCU. Yeah, I'm going to imagine I'm the president of uh, Warner Brothers right now. Would it sway you if I said that Scarface calls Batman Gatman because he's a ventriloquist dummy and he can't say bees? <laughs> <laughs> That's genuine. It almost swung me the other way. <laughs> what I'm thinking is that I'm going to commission Seb's movie right now. The ventriloquist is going to be the villain in the first standalone Batman movie, but Jason Todd is going to be Robin in it. And basically, I'm setting up my very complicated universe for in 20 years' time. I'm going to commission James's movie as well. So I'm keeping the script. I'm putting it in the back of a filing cabinet and saying, in 20 years' time, this is the story I'm telling. So you're both winners, but mostly Sep. Okay, well, I'm going to change the names of my script and sell it as a Captain America spin-off. So. <laughs> Just change. Jason Todd to Bucky Barnes. They've, I think they've done that already. But but Bucky wasn't brought back by Superboy punching the walls of reality, so <laughs> there is that. It's it's times when you say <laughs> stuff like this that, that terrifies me about comics. <laughs> Yeah, you and me both. Partly joking. (laughs) Um, Okay, well, that brings us to the end of our second episode of Cinematic Universe. As I said before, we are now recording minisodes in between the episodes where I will uh, do a brief update on the superhero movie news that passes in the week we're off and also bring you my reactions to the... Uh, to the recommendations that Seven James have just given me. It would be great if you could get in touch with us because we'd love to feature your feedback in the minisodes. Um, so you can get in touch with us on Twitter where we are at CU underscore podcast. So give that a follow. We're on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash cinematic universe pod. And you can email us directly at um, cinematic universe pod at gmail.com. Uh, there's also going to be the posts up on panel beats where you can comment. Can you comment on panel beats? Yeah. Yeah. 
You can totally comment on panel beats, which you should do. Um, and if you want to subscribe to Cinematic Universe, hopefully you're doing that already. But if you're not, we are now on iTunes or on Stitcher and um, just about all of your good podcasting apps. Thanks for listening so far. Seb, James and I will be back in two weeks. And if you stick around until the end of the music, we'll be announcing what we are talking about on the episode. Uh, so I'll see you in a week with the mini-sode and in two weeks with episode three. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. I'm just not the hero type, clearly. With this laundry list of character defects, all the mistakes I've made, largely public. Yeah, okay. The truth is, Cinematic Universe will return in two weeks' time with Iron Man. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.